Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reformed Podmatics. My name is Pastor Mark. And I am Pastor Zach. And we thank you for joining us here on episode 49. We're nearing the 50-episode mark, which is kind of amazing. Crazy and to believe. Uh, we thank you for sticking with us through um, a lot of time that we've spent um, talking, thinking about matters theological and practical. And uh, hopefully it's been an edifying thing for uh, for you as a listener, whether you've just found us recently or have been uh, following with us since episode one. We thank you for yeah. uh, spending your time uh, with us, and hopefully this can be a helpful conversation for you as we jump into the topic of Christian biography. Um, yeah. And today our particular focus will be on the great Reformed theologian named Herman Bovink. And so uh, this is going to be a little bit of a new series, and so it would be helpful if we start off with the, um, the prolegomena, you might say, of the series <laughs> itself, is uh, why are we going to be thinking about Christian history, Christian biography, um, when there are so many hmm. big issues in our world today uh, that we need to be talking about and thinking about, why look towards the past, uh, especially into the, the deep past? Um, Hmm. So what what would be one reason that you would give, Zach, for the importance yeah. of Christian history? This is a question I I think about often as somebody who's very interested in Christian history. Uh, I think the number one reason is that studying Christian history helps me be a better reader of Scripture. Hmm. Um, the basic principle here that I have used, especially when I've taught the youth group about these sorts of things— is that it's better to read scripture uh, with the insights of others than it is to read it all on your own. And so we've done uh, exercises with the youth group before where I've given them all a passage to read and then sent them all off on their own to go <laughs> read it together or separately. And then I, from after about 10 or 15 minutes of them sifting through it and thinking through it, I then put them in, in groups of four or five for them to discuss together. And then once those groups have discussed, we c- come back together as a whole group and those groups share their, their best insights that they received. And then the, the whole group uh, then sort of sees what, the ho- what everyone else was saying. And I think just, just in that sort of practice alone, that little exercise helps us to see that we, we do as individuals have the ability to see scripture uh, in all of its glory and beauty. Um, but there are other things that are going to be pulled out by other people that we would have missed. Hmm. Uh, and in his now famous introduction on the incarnation or introduction to on the incarnation by Athanasius, uh, the famous C.S. Lewis gives a very amazing defense of why we must study Christian history. And one of the big things is that he points out that as we study or as we read the old books, as he puts it, uh, we become more acquainted and familiar with what he calls mere Christianity. Mm. Um, 
And so through reading theologians of the past or stories of Christians of the past, we see what Christianity is all about. And we see it, we see sort of the mainstream center of what Christianity is and has always been. And so that is very important. And I think as we read uh, men and women of the past, we, we are drawn to scriptural truths that we may have overlooked in our time. Our day and age, if we were to only study the scripture with the concerns of, of our context on our minds, we would we would have, a, I think, a strong understanding mm-hmm. of sexuality. We would be drawn to what scripture says about sexuality. Mm-hmm. But in other times th- throughout history, uh, there have been other major mm-hmm. concerns that they're thinking through. And so as we study with the saints of, of church history, we actually are given, are drawn in our attention to all sorts of uh, passages of scripture that we may have overlooked um, and so it helps us read with with new eyes yeah there's a i heard a really good sermon on uh, melchizedek once by don carson <laughs> and he he talked about how in the in the first century in the world where jesus lived one of the biggest questions that people would have had about relating to god was about sacrifices um, what must we do to be near God, and how do sacrifices, literal sacrifices, relate to our worship? That's just not something people ask at all anymore yeah. in Western culture. And <clears throat> and yeah. Don Carson talks about this because he says in that first century context, um, it, it was so thrilling that people would hear that Christ is an order, uh, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. And so... That, that sort of solves the sacrificial system um, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, maybe we should be asking those questions a little bit more. Scripture prompts us to ask those good questions um, instead of just all of the, the hot topics mm-hmm. of today. And so um, I think another reason to study church history is that um, we humble ourselves when we study church history recognizing that we today— are not so enlightened and so illuminated and so smart in our scientific worldview with all of our modern technology um, that uh, that we don't that we are sort of above those from the past. Um, as we dig into Herman Bovink today, we will encounter a man who is uh, a Titanic intellect, um, a man who is far far smarter than Zachary, um, a man who also had a, a deep and profound faith in Christ. So um, studying church history, you can kind of pick out these titans. Uh, mm-hmm. you, can, you can look to Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Calvin, uh, Bavinck, many other um, sort of non-Western uh, mm-hmm. people as well. I think that it, it broadens the scope of our knowledge and um, causes us to see in reading Bavink or in reading Augustine, that uh, we should be humbled, I yeah. think, when we encounter not just Scripture, which is perfect, but these these men and women who understood Scripture so deeply, hmm. um, it makes me realize, wow, I've got a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah, it, ex- it expands the horizons yeah. in so many ways. Um, yeah, and I think in doing this, if we, if we read someone like Augustine or Anselm or Athanasius or Chrysostom, um, we then discover some of these foundational truths that we share in common with Christians who don't see eye to eye with us on 
on many important issues. Um, and so this, it, it helps us understand Christian history and in, in doing so, it helps us to understand the sort of Christian family tree and where we as reformed Christians sort of fall within that family tree. I, th- I think another reason we've sort of been getting at here is that studying church history is then profoundly practical. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is, there's so much insight that we can gain from not just the theologians, but the famous lay people who have done heroic things from, from martyrs, for example, and and their courage or from mothers who have prayed for their children. Uh, There's, there's mothers we can think of St. Monica, Augustine's mother, who, who prayed for many, many years for Augustine to, uh, to be captured by, by the Lord's grace. And so, these sorts of stories can inspire us and be, they can they can frame and help us to see what living the Christian life in our world today will look like, uh, even for those of us who aren't uh, professional theologians mm. or pastors. Um, and, and I think with all of this, one final thing I'll say is that church history also anchors us in the truth. It helps us to see what Christians have always believed. And so in so doing, it helps us see what we must remain faithful to. Uh, the the uh, letter in the Bible called Jude, very short one chapter letter right towards the end of the New Testament, uh, famously tells, of, tells us of contending for the faith once for all passed on to the saints. Yeah. And so we must in our own day be faithful to receive this faith and to pass it on to the generation to come. And so in doing that, we have to think through what ha- what is this gospel? What is this faith that we have received? And how can we make sure we're not changing it, we're not reshaping it, uh, we're not destroying it, but we are faithfully receiving it, believing it, and passing it on? Yeah, there is so much to be gained from knowing our history, our our. Christian family history um, for good and for ill. Uh, uh, That's sort of the flip side of Christian history is that as we learn the mistakes of uh, the past, then we can hopefully see with greater clarity, uh, thinking of the Reformation and all of the polemical and even violent reaction um, over an issue like baptism, and the, the stain, the blemish that that is on the name of Christ um, causes us to be serious about not repeating such mistakes today mm-hmm. on maybe not just baptism, but other issues as well. So um, as we learn the good and the bad from the history of the last 2,000 years, uh, we're going to grow in wisdom. I think that's a lot of what we want to get to mm-hmm. here is um, not just growing in knowledge of the Lord, but growing in wisdom and how to sort through things that are happening in our world today. Absolutely. And so one of the ways we're going to be going about this is each week we do this, which won't be consecutive weeks. It won't be just the next five weeks we're doing this, but it'll be sprinkled within. Yeah. We'll be giving sort of non-chronological bio- biographical sketches of different Christians' lives who are influential for for church history and helpful for us to study today. And to do this, we'll start by giving a sort of brief biological sketch of their life, sort of when and where they were born, the context of the world in which they grew up. And then we want to look at their uh, theological emphases or um, their 
the things yeah, that they the really cared about, their yeah. contributions to the yeah to the world of theology. Yeah. And then finally, we'll we want to look at the lessons we can learn from their their lives, uh, whether it's the theological lessons we can learn, or more generally lessons we just learn about what it means to be a Christian in our day. And so, to start with Bavink, we we should say that he was born, if you're wondering, in the year 1854. And he died in 1921. Actually, he died July 29th. As of the recording today, uh, it is July 30th. And so he died 100 years ago yesterday, which is pretty incredible to think about. Uh, Maybe we can consider yesterday the feast day of Herman (laughs) (laughs) Bobbing. If if he would want us to, he probably wouldn't. (laughs) No, he wouldn't. Um, I think as a good reformed theologian, (laughs) he would reject that. But uh, it's interesting to think about that it's been a hundred years now since he has been with the Lord. And so we have a lot to think about as we Mm -hmm. think of his of his life. And so what is so, sort of the uh, the beginning stages? What are, what are the beginning stages of his life look like, Mark? Well, it helps really to know his context. And so we're going to base a lot of our knowledge of Bovink's life on the biography, mm-hmm. Bovink, a critical biography by James Eglinton that mm-hmm. Zach and I and two other pastors, uh, Patrick and Dave, if you're listening, um, <laughs> shout out to you, are have been reading together over the last couple of months. And so it's a great biography, and um, uh, Eglinton in the biography takes pains to set Bovink in his context. And um, if you think of the dates of his life, 1854 to 1921, he lived in the turn of a century, um, 19th into the 20th. And just like our turn of the century, the 20th into the 21st, it was really a time of cultural change. Um, And... Basically, he lives in a world where something called liberalism, Protestant liberalism, German Protestant liberalism, is sweeping through uh, continental Europe. It's in full bloom um, at this point. And uh, that is um, really spearheaded by a philosopher named Friedrich Schleiermacher. And so he uh, strongly elevates subjective reasoning, subjective understanding of the truth, um, takes a lower view on objective truth, meaning maybe for those who are listening, who, who aren't, um, don't have sort of a theological education. Objective is sort of seeing things as just facts, um, facts that sort of like think math in terms of objective truth. Like there's formulas and facts and that's just Mm -hmm. the way things are. And it doesn't matter who you are two plus two equals four. That's Mm -hmm. an objective truth. Um, versus the subjective is more the personal mm-hmm. side of things. And so Schleiermacher elevates the personal yeah, um, the side of revelation, experiential, personal. Um, and uh, this is threatening Christianity in a lot of ways because it causes people to really doubt the usefulness of Scripture in particular um, as a, a source of objective revelation. Yeah, the truth of Scripture. Yeah, and so that's the world that Bavink enters into, and um, he's the son of a pastor uh, in northeastern Holland. Um, I think the the town that Bavink was born in is now in Germany. I, I think that— uh, It could be. It's right on the border. Yeah, it's right near the, the border. I, I don't know exactly if that's the case, but very close to Germany, and um, he— uh, was always a gifted student um, in uh, the 
critical biography of Bavink, it notes that uh, in his oral exams at the end of um, seminary, it was sort of there was a buzz around the uh, performance that he gave um, in in answering the professor's questions, and so mm-hmm. he he sort of uh, went through education uh, pretty smoothly, although um, he made a very uh, controversial choice and where mm-hmm. he attended. Maybe you could get into that a little bit, Zach, of of why it was controversial that he would go to Leiden instead of Campen. Yeah, so Campen was the was the theological school of the denomination that he was in, which would would have been the actually it's called the Christian Reformed Church, although it would have been in Dutch instead yeah. of in English. Um, so that was the more conservative theological school. But Bavink really wanted to push himself. He wanted to uh, to deal with the cutting edge of what was going on in the the broader continental theological world of Protestantism, and mm-hmm. so uh, he wanted to he wanted to not insulate himself, but he wanted to be right there in the midst of it, contending for the Orthodox Reformed faith. And he valued uh, the greater intellectual rigor yes, of yeah. Leiden as well. Yeah, and it, it was it was a very very rigorous school. Um, I'm sure it still is today, <laughs> and so. After a year of, of seminary training, he transfers there to Leiden and finishes his degree. And so this was seen as very controversial because of the lines that had been drawn in the sort of ecclesiastical setting in Holland at the time with the um, seceding church, uh, the Christian Reformed Church, and then with the, the National Reformed Church of, of the Netherlands. And so... Yeah, it would be a little bit like if the top student who everyone knew was going to be a pastor or theologian from our local Ripon Christian, a conservative mm-hmm. school, decided to go to Cal, mm-hmm. you know, or, or to, in Berkeley. Yeah. Um, and, and like, no, you've got yeah. to go to Dort, where, where everyone, yeah. that's the denominational uh, linkage. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but he broke with mm-hmm. um, tradition in some ways and went to um, I don't know. It certainly wouldn't be as as politically or theologically liberal as what Cal is today, but right. um, it, that that's a little bit of an illustration of what he did. The the, the golden boy, you know, yeah. the, the next great uh, intellect that a lot of people saw a lot of potential in, went a, away to the the more liberal school. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Although it, back then it would have been maybe an even bigger deal. Yeah. Than if somebody today went instead of going to Dort, that went to Cal Berkeley. Yeah. That would that wouldn't be as huge of a deal. It would be you know, you'd, you'd be interested in hearing why. But yeah, back then this was a huge deal, um, and it sort of made the news and made this in in his uh, churches and amongst people of his denomination it would have been well known that this happened and he uh, was worried about it too in his journal yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he he was getting ready to go there and this is one of the things that we're gonna pull from what we need to learn about Bavink is his honesty and his humility mm-hmm. and um his his honesty about his struggle and so he he's getting ready to go and he writes in his journal oh jesus let me not fail you basically it's a mm-hmm. paraphrase of what what he says i want to hold on to you christ i want to know your word yeah. as I go to this place that is going to threaten me in yeah. some ways, um, philosophy, spiritually. Hmm. So um, he was honest about that too. He wasn't just you know rose tinted glasses towards all the things that I'm going to learn there. Yeah. Um, he he was a little bit worried. You can tell in the Dag book about what was going to happen to his faith there. Yeah, the Dag book being essentially what we would call a, a diary. diary. Yeah. Um, so he 
he does his uh, studies on the ethics of Ulrich Zwingli, if I remember correctly, mm. uh, which was which was interesting. Uh, and the in so doing, of, he yeah. sort of uh, you can tell just by the fact that he's studying a reformer at this time that would have been sort of you know that would have been an outdated mm. way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But for Bavink, he really wanted to retrieve. Uh, the Reformation and the, the Reformed faith, and so that was one one example of him doing that even early on in his life. And so after he graduates, he then becomes a pastor, and he moves to a city in Holland or the Netherlands uh, called Franeker. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, that that's sounds a, pretty. That's good. as good as I can pronounce it uh, <laughs> with my non-Dutch heritage. Um, one little but, nugget of fun for me in reading the yeah I was the biography. What stood out there? Well. Um, in reading the biography, he preached in a, the very small town of Swartzlice, which is where my father-in-law was born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, again, tiny little town in, mm. in the Netherlands. And as Bavink was sort of getting ready to receive a call, he would go and preach around. Uh, the Netherlands would take trains all over the place. And mm. during that time, he was courting um, a young woman named Amelia Dendecker. Oh, man. And uh, he was, yeah, he, his heart was broken. He was rejected by her, mostly by her father from all accounts. And uh, I, I like that his biography kind of includes those you might call personal failures or, um, yeah. or heartbreaks. Uh, mm-hmm. he, so he, he remained unmarried for uh, in, quite a bit into his adult life, especially for the time, hmm. um, mm-hmm. and eventually did marry Joanna. But... Uh, uh, he he bounced around a little bit. He was only a pastor for one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like he served in a difficult congregation. Um, overall, he, he valued the work of a pastor, but was very clearly called to use his mind to teach and write um, mm-hmm. a systematic theology, which was sort of his his life goal for a long time was was cranking out the reform dogmatics, which he of course eventually did. Yeah, and so after his one year in the pastorate. He returns to Campen as a, a theologian and would get to work over the next, I don't know, decade or so. Um, he'd, be get, he'd get to work on writing that Reformed Dogmatics. Um, he would write many other things mm-hmm. throughout his life, but the Reformed Dogmatics, which we now have in English, four volumes, great, great uh, collection to have if you have the money for it. <laughs> uh, it's a little yeah. expensive, but... Is well worth reading. There's other shortened versions of his systematic theology. There's one that's sort of the abbreviated version, if you're interested, mm-hmm. or there's his own shortened version called The Wonderful Works of God, which we'll get to some of the, the great books that he wrote later on. But and part of the reason people know more about Bavink right now is his stuff is just recently translated from mm-hmm. Dutch into English. Um, I mean, as recently as mm-hmm. The Wonderful Works of God was just released a couple of years ago, to my yeah. knowledge. Yeah, um, I think so. In uh, in English, and so and the dogmatics. Um, when were those first published? Like when early I was thousands. Yeah, when I was in seminary, they were just finishing it. So I was at hmm. seminary from 2008 to 2011, hmm. and hmm. Um, I was at Calvin Seminary, and there's sort of the Bavink Institute, um, including John Bolt, who is one of the world's great Bavink theologians and uh, also a translator. Um, he did a lot of work with that, and that was just finishing while I was at seminary. And so we're talking, this stuff has only been in English for 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the the trans, the trans there's four volumes of the dogmatics, and they were, of course, released when each one was done, but yeah. the, the set was completed while I was in seminary. So, 
That's pretty recent. That's the part of the reason I think why people maybe haven't heard of Bovent quite as much is mm. just the in, inaccessibility of his work to the English speaking crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully that will change. And that's part of the purpose of this really as well is that people might pick up some of his work and uh, read yeah. some for yourself. Uh, the reason that I wanted to start with Bovink was personally for me, and I know this this won't be the case for everyone, but for me it's just an absolute thrill to read um, his theology. And mm. uh, I think that's the, the one of the main things that I want to draw from Herman Bovink, that the lesson that I would want to take away is the doxological nature of his theology. Mm. Um, just like Calvin and Augustine before him, he writes theology out of worship. Um, he, yeah. he is worshiping um, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by writing true things about the Lord. Hmm. Um, it's not a heady intellectual exercise, um, although it certainly is intellectual, and oh, it's, yeah. it is certainly very academic. Um, even in the most academic sections of the dogmatics, you still get the sense this is a very worshipful activity for hmm. Bavink to be writing this. Um, yeah, that reminds me of a, another quote from C.S. Lewis, which I don't have written down, so I, I, might, I might butcher it here a little bit, but... He says something along the lines of many people will sit down with a book of, of devotional study and they'll find that nothing really happens, that it doesn't quite work for them. A sort of devotional book doesn't mm. work. But he says, but, but some of these people will find that when they sit down with a, with a theological book, that they're with a, with a, he says, with a pencil in, the hand, in their hand and a pipe in their teeth, uh, they mm. will find that their heart, heart sings unbidden mm. uh, as they read sort of the great theology. Uh, from whatever theologian they're reading. Yeah. I think that's particularly the case with, with Bavink. You can sense his love for the Lord on every page. Uh, everything that he says, no matter how far afield he gets into the technical, mm-hmm. academic mm-hmm. nature of things, it always comes back around to uh, sort of the why, why it's important and how this uh, ought to increase our love for the Lord and the way we live our lives. And so he does theology in a very theocentric way um, with with an aim at glorifying God. And there's so there's a lot we could say about his theology. Something that struck me when I was in seminary reading Bob Inc., uh was how deep his knowledge was of the various subfields of mm. theology. So history, church history, he knows profoundly well. Uh, he would be able to rattle things off about uh, the early church or about the, the... An obscure late medieval theologian. Yeah, that you'd never even heard of in your church history survey classes. Oh. He would just have a very technical working knowledge of, of church history. Then he would we- be able to weave that in with with very, very strong philosophy. So he, would, he was mm. very... Uh, you could say literate with with philosophy of his day and of really of history, um, and and so he weaves these sorts of things together. Also, he knows psychology very well. He knew, knows how the human heart, the soul, works, mm-hmm. uh, and so he's weaving all of these with things. Biblical in, knowledge, and he's too. and yeah. his biblical knowledge is ferocious. It's yeah. you'll see quotations of scripture uh, just scattered throughout every page. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's very very adept in many different fields and he's synthesizing it all together uh, in particularly in the reform dogmatics, but really throughout the rest of his work as well. And I just remember thinking 
This was like a seven-course meal of theology. And reading modern theologians, which I had read at the time and still read, uh, it was it was quite a big gap, mm. a, a big difference. Um, and there's a reason that his systematic theology, the Reformed Dogmatics, is four volumes, whereas most today written by modern theologians are a single volume. Yeah, I uh, that that's a good uh, little transition into um, a little bit more of his theology. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Uh, Maybe before we jump into that, though, he was a professor at uh, Campen and then at the Free University, basically for all of his adult life. So he was a professor, mm-hmm. and uh, while he was a professor, he was writing these uh, these great books and editing and refining and, and sending out different editions and things like that. So and the Free um, University, by the way, was Kuiper's yeah. Abraham Kuiper's university he had started, and it was a university, not a seminary. So. He starts at the seminary and then finishes his life at the university. And the free, the name free, uh, connotes a, a disconnect from state, from a state university. It's not that you didn't have to pay. Right. It's not as, <laughs> yeah, it's not the uh, Elizabeth Warren University. Uh, <laughs> that's free for everyone. <laughs> um, but uh, it was uh, it was free from, we would maybe say, government intervention in terms of uh, the yeah. curriculum and, and things like that. So. So, anyways, he 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 was there alongside Kuiper, and and they were friends. Um, they occasionally saw things differently, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly were supportive of one another. These two, um, uh, sort of the the two patriarchs of neo Calvinism, uh, Kuiper and Bavink, working alongside each other, which is pretty cool to think of how how you know what those conversations would have been like um, in on the campus there of the Free University. So. Uh, what was his theology? How would we summarize um, neo-Calvinism? How would we summarize Bavink's theology? Um, uh, Zach used an important word just a moment ago that it was theocentric, that um, everything must be traced back to God, to his nature, to his glory, to his creation, to his revelation. Um, there are, in, in one part of the Reformed Dogmatics, um, Bavink takes great pains to differentiate between a reformed approach to theology and the world and at the time he he contrasts it with a lutheran um approach to the world which we could also include in that certainly today an arminian or definitely sort of the evangelical non-denominational approach to theology and so uh bavink would say the reformed person is must ask questions about god that's why we that's even why we come to church that's why we uh, study any theology is so that we may know the Lord and we might know his glory. We might know who he is. Um, and of course, as we learn this, we learn the gospel, we learn um, sanctification, we learn his law, all of those things. Whereas the, he says, the Lutheran um, for, is more anthropocentric, so more uh, human focused, asking the question of what must I do to be saved? Mm-hmm. And so where, where the Reformed person starts with, who is God? Mm-hmm. And all knowledge should begin there. Um, the, the more modern, uh, particularly evangelical person will say, well, what difference does it make to me? And that's almost the starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that has a lot of profound applications and implications um, mm-hmm. in those two different starting points. But certainly uh, Calvin and then the neo Calvinists, Bavink and, and Kuiper, want to ask this question of who is God and, and how can the, the God-enthralled person live in this world that God has made in the best way? 
Yeah, and I think what what Bobbing does so well is he takes the best of the reformed tradition in his time and puts that forward. And so he's standing at a point where he's pretty far removed historically from the Reformation. Hmm. Uh, the 16th century and the 19th century are pretty far apart yeah. in the grand scheme of things. And so what he's able to do is to take the wisdom of the Reformed tradition in its breadth and to put that forward. Um, and I think that his his whole thing about Reformed versus Lutheranism, or he'll, he'll contrast Reformed theology with all sorts of yeah, other Catholicism well. quite a Catholicism bit as well. Catholicism is yeah. a big one. Um, it, it's very interesting to see from... He sort of stands on a mountaintop in some sense and is able to see... Uh, sort of the, the the continental divide that exists hmm. in some ways between the different groups, uh, but he also I think does see what holds them together. But um, what would we say are some of the most important books that that or or works that Bob Inc uh, has left for us that we today can go and read and and learn from? We've already talked, of course, about the Reformed dogmatics, the sort of namesake of this podcast. And, mm-hmm. and so what are, what are some of the other great things we can, we can uh, recommend to our audience? Well, the one that I walk around with quite often is the wonderful works of God. So that's um, the, it's a synthesized kind of version of the Reformed dogmatics. I, I would prefer actually to read Reformed dogmatics hmm. Um it goes into much greater detail, and if somebody was going to start reading the four-volume Reformed Dogmatics, hmm. uh, I, I would say don't feel bad about skipping over three or four paragraphs where he goes into immense academic detail about uh, very <laughs> fine points of difference in, among various theologians. Yeah. Um, sometimes it can be good to, to kind of scan for words that uh, or, or, or ideas or sentences that might helpfully illuminate a topic but um with sort of aside from those very very technical sections you are going to find accessible sections in the dogmatics and so um he he writes the dogmatics really intending for a more academic uh reader but the less academic reader would still have much to gain by picking up a volume of of the dogmatics and so i I find there's a certain amount of uh um I don't know, zeal or uh, depth in the dogmatics that that is sometimes lacking a little bit in the wonderful works of God. Hmm. Uh, maybe getting into the flow of the argument is important for getting to that that pithy one-sentence summary that is so powerful, um, yeah. and, and occasionally that will be lacking a little bit in wonderful works of God. So um, the Reformed Dogmatics, four volumes, uh, I, I would say Prolegomena is a, a great place to start. That's the first volume. Yeah, and that, uh, that is really good. Yeah, and then the other volumes are, volume two is God and creation, so really the Father. Volume three is essentially the Son, sin, and salvation in Christ. And then volume four is more focused on the work of the Spirit and the Church. So um, you can think of it in, in that sense. There's There's sort of the intro volume, then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, it sort of follows in some sense like most great dogmatic works throughout history the flow of the apostles creed um so it works its way through that i don't think it's explicit if i remember correctly um and there's a lot of overlap i mean it's not like in volume four you're only going to be reading about the work of the holy spirit there's going to be 
a lot of uh, mention of the mediation of Christ and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. One of the great things to say about Reformed Dogmatics is that it's a great example of Bavink's own emphasis on Reformed Catholicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would write a lot about about Catholicity explicitly in different essays and speeches that he would give. But um, we see this come into practice really in the Reformed Dogmatics. And so he really, as I said earlier, weaves together so many uh, different things into a beautiful tapestry of theology that helps us understand so much of Scripture. Um, well, so, maybe we could give an example of that really quick, um, sure. just so that you could hear some of his his thought. Uh, in Prolegomena, he, he really wants to establish a theology of revelation, a theology of what it means to seek God and know God. Um, and so uh, on page 340 of Volume 1, his Reformed Dogmatics, he gives a really great definition of Scripture, of why the Bible is... A, a particularly potent and essential source of, uh, of revelation from God. And so he says, the revelation that scripture discloses to us does not just consist in a number of disconnected words and isolated facts, sort of uh, confronting the proof texting culture that we live in today where uh, you know, really all that matters is uh, the seven names of Jesus and the book of John and almost like there's just these facts in the Bible that that you've got to find and pull out. He says, no, it does not consist in that, but Scripture is one single historical and organic whole, a mighty world-controlling and world-renewing system of testimonies and acts of God. So it is, uh, you, can, you can hear there that this is a man who believes these things by the way that he writes, um, referring to the Bible as a mighty world-controlling and world-renewing system of testimonies about God. And um, that there's just uh, the pages of, of his work are, are loaded with those awesome definitions and descriptions of uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Church, um, God's Word, um, the law of God, interactions between grace and law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of these, these great things that he covers are, are just so helpful. Yeah, that is a really good quote uh, from the first volume, which has so many good quotes about revelation in general and scripture and mm-hmm. and natural revelation and so on, or general revelation. Um, another great book that I've not read, but I've just heard about that I really want to read from Bob Inc., uh, which is talked a lot about in the biography, is his Reformed Ethics. So mm-hmm. this was meant to sort of be the follow-up to his Reformed Dogmatics uh, and so in it, he works through uh, what it means to live as a Christian in this world. And if I remember correctly from the biography, uh, one of his main sort of fundamental uh, background things that he's working through in the book is the Ten Commandments. And so mm. I would personally love to read this, and I plan to to do so at some point in the future. Yeah. It's perfectly ambiguous, but I want to do it <laughs> because it would I know it would be very very beneficial. Well, he also has a book called The Christian Family, and um, that that hasn't aged quite as well, I would say, as hmm. uh, some of these others. Um, Bavink wrote, obviously, from a, a Dutch um, turn of the 19th century perspective, and so had a, some very specific uh, prescriptions for uh, how the fun the family should work overall there is a lot of good truth in in the christian family but 
um, as I was reading it, uh, I, I was thinking, yeah, um, th- this is so particular um, that mm-hmm. I, I would sort of prefer to read his his theology and his ethics um, and you know his philosophy over um, maybe just the 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 precise prescriptions that he has for what husbands and wives should be doing exactly in all circumstances. So the Christian family has some great stuff. I, there's one great passage where he talks about how um, the woman uh, gives the, the sort of the heart and the character of the family. Hmm. Uh, the uh, the the mother of a family can can do so much in determining the warmth of the home. And and I'm like, well, that that is. I think that is really true, and so of, of course a man can contribute to that too. But uh, I think that is uh, a profound insight that that is mm. born out in reality quite often. Yeah, yeah, and that, I think that book helps us to see that what we what we aim to do here is not hagiography, where we yeah. just want to make make him sound perfect. Uh, there may be even be things that we disagree. Now, having not read that, I'm not familiar with with all of what Mark is is getting at so would you mind sharing some of the things that you found oh. a, little, a little off-putting well i i remember um i don't remember specifics right now because i i, I was taken aback a little bit um, from having read through uh the wonderful works of god and i haven't completely read every page of reformed dogmatics but just really respecting so much mm-hmm. um it, it seemed like uh, maybe in the same way that we do when we get into some territory that we know a little bit less about um, it, it, he was out of his element a little bit mm. more, and and uh, I, maybe I, I'd be too critical in saying that, but it, it didn't seem to be uh, resoundingly true, in, quite in mm. the same way that his handling of revelation or uh, the atonement or something would mm. be. So I no no examples jump to mind right now, and maybe I'm making people want to go pick it up. <laughs> I think I got it on Kindle for very very cheap, um, and uh, there. Uh, I would just say the prescriptions for exactly what men and women need to be doing in the family were, were probably more precise than hmm. than the Bible yeah. would want to would want us to be. Interesting. That's always so, a danger, I think, yeah. for those of us like ourselves who consider ourselves complementarians. Yeah, um, that's what we give overly precise prescriptions for what life should look like for yep. men and for women. For every family, everywhere, and, and so forth. So yeah. um, So, anyways, as we move into the final section of our podcast today, we want to talk about lessons that we can learn from this great theologian, um, in, including some some quotes and, and some more references to his work. Uh, the first one that came to my mind is that he lived in this tension, um, the tension between... Mm-hmm. Uh, the modern world and our orthodox ancient faith. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that he lived in that tension in a number of ways uh, by attending Leiden and um, keeping still one foot in his Christian Reformed heritage. Uh, he was living in that tension. He also did that by engaging with various philosophers and scholars that a lot of people would have considered um, untouchable maybe in unreadable. some ways yeah unreadable and yeah. Uh, and so he certainly lived in this tension of wanting to bring the ancient faith into uh, the modern world with without sacrificing or compromising on any truth yeah I think the way that you frame it is living between the tension in Campen and Leiden is a good way of putting it and I think that this is very 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 helpful for modern Christians today for Christians living in the 20th 
21st century. Hmm. Um, I, for me, even I, when I first found Bob Inc., it was very much like an aha sort of moment because I had been looking for a figure who could give me a sort of frame on what this might look like. Hmm. Um, so as listeners will know, if you've listened to most episodes in our, in the past, um, I grew up in the, in a Christian home and church uh, as a teenager in late high school early college began to really question my faith and began began thinking that Christianity needed a facelift as I often say <laughs> uh, and this is sort of like the Christianity that Bob Inc was facing or would have been facing at um, at Leiden it, it was sort of the the liberalizing Christianity mm. that wanted to sort of uh, put a, put away some of the the strong, sharp truths of orthodoxy, and and try to move into this more enlightened. Yeah, uh, to dismiss view. them as outdated was a right. big thing. Yeah, and so I was wanting to do that, and then I began reading the sort of uh, young, restless, and reformed guys: um, Driscoll, Piper, MacArthur, Chandler. I could, the list could go on, um, and began to really like hunker down on orthodoxy. Uh, but I think what, what Bobbing has helped to do is to show that uh, you can be a robust Orthodox theologian who who is committed to the historic truths of the Christian faith, who's committed to the scriptures above all, uh, and still be a great listener, an observer, an interactor with uh, with what's going on in your present world. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, you'll be a better. Yeah, interactor with what's happening in the present world if you are rooted in the historic yeah. Christian faith. Yeah, and so it was for a man like Bob Inc. It was a great decision, I think, for him to go to Leiden to push himself mm. to to stretch himself. Um, was it dangerous spiritually? Sure, uh, but I think that God used that God used that and pr- helped him be what uh, a recent book about him has considered. Uh, or has called him as being orthodox yet modern. And I think that that's a good description. When you read Bob Inc., you don't see that he is fearful no. of of no. modern theology in his day or, or of more liberal theology in his day. He's not... Um, he's not angry. He's not angry about it. He's not even... He's not dismissive. Uh, in fact, you can tell that he knows what he's talking about um, very, very well, that he has read it thoroughly and very graciously. Um, and I think that that is a good example of what theology in our wor- our world should look like today as we as Christians try to contend for the faith in our day. And the reason that he's not fearful, he's not angry, he's not reactive I think, mm-hmm. or, or overly polemical. We did a whole episode on argumentative Calvinists. That is not Herman Bovink, although... He was um, he was argumentative in the sense that he disagreed <laughs> with um, with his friend who became a Muslim because he doubted the truth of Scripture, mm-hmm. and with um, Nietzsche and, and uh, atheist philosophers, he disagreed with them profoundly. Um, mm-hmm. But he he always did so, recognizing that these are people, uh, the real people. Mm-hmm who were, were searching for the truth just like he was. Now he, of course, believed that we've found that in, in Christ and in, in, in the scriptures, the, in the word of God. Um, but uh, never setting himself up as sort of holier than thou um, hmm. to me. Uh, and uh, part of the reason that he was able to do this is his high view of common grace. So yeah. 
this is something that I believe very strongly we need to recapture quite a bit in our modern context um, in this world where uh, we see our way is the right way and the other person who sees things maybe even just a little bit differently than we do is just on the highway to hell they are wrong um, and we're suspicious of every motive that this person must have if they're wrong on this one issue Um, Mm -hmm. I I think of not just politically of course but uh, theologically this can be the case as well um, and and he had a view of what is called common grace, which uh, led him to recognize that even if I disagree with someone, there could be something to gain from right. considering their perspective, from the, they're showing me a hunger for something that might actually be a good hunger that they have and could even be leading them into a certain amount of truth, um, but maybe they just haven't completely got there, they're not born again, they're not regenerate. Um, and so I have to hold this truth that I find from this person loosely, but I could still value it. And so I don't have to be afraid of that person for uh, believing something different than me. Yeah. So some people, I think, have a, have in their mind a bad view of common grace. It sort of gets a bad rap yeah. often because people uh, in our current times often have taken it too far. Um, sometimes people think, well, if, if God can give common grace to to all people, then maybe we should uh, learn from the spiritual practices of, of you know, ancient tribes, tribes that still <laughs> practice their tribal religions. And when they talk to their creator, what they're actually doing is talking to God. And yeah, there's wisdom for us to learn. And I think that's that's too far. But what we can see in Common Grace is is a window for how to appreciate what is happening, even though their worship is fundamentally um, aimed not at God. And so, um, yeah, you found a great quote from Bob and Khan yeah. on the topic. And so I, I just say, go for it. Read. Yeah. So it's kind of a long quote. It's from a lecture he gave in 1894 entitled common grace. And so I'll just read it. Um, hopefully our, our listeners can, can get through the whole thing and not, get, not fall asleep. Or <laughs> it's good like folks. <laughs> so this is what he says. He says from this common grace proceeds all that is good and true that we still see in fallen man. The light still shines in the darkness. The Spirit of God lives and works in everything that has been created. Therefore, there still remain in man certain traces of the images or the, of the image of God. There is still intellect and reason. All kinds of natural gifts are still present in him. Man still has a feeling and an impression of divinity, a seed of religion. Reason is a priceless gift. Philosophy is an admirable gift from God. Music is also a gift of God. Arts and sciences are good, profitable, and of high value. The state has been instituted by God. There is still a desire for truth and for virtue and for natural love between parents and children. In matters that concern this earthly life, man is still able to do much good. Through the doctrine of common grace, the Reformed have, on the one hand, maintained the, the specific and absolute character of the Christian faith, But on the other hand, they have been second to none in their appreciation for whatever of the good and beautiful is still being given by God to sinful human beings. Sin is a power, a principle, which has penetrated deeply into all forms of created life. It would, if left to itself, have devastated and destroyed everything. But God has interposed with his grace. Through common grace, he restrains sin in its disintegrating and destructive working. 
But this kind of grace is still not sufficient. It subdues, but does not change. It restrains, but does not conquer. And so what we see here is Bobink's way of appreciating all the, sh- the truth and the good that we can still see in the world. Because God gives grace commonly to all people, not just to Christians, we Christians have a duty to, uh, to perceive this mm-hmm. grace and mm-hmm. to perceive truth where it can be found. And so we can, we can appreciate music, not just Christian music that we listen to on Christian radio stations, but we can appreciate the beauty of, of truly good music where it can be found. Yeah. Arts and sciences we can appreciate. We yeah. can still appreciate listening to a smart person uh, who has very important and helpful things to say. Uh, about academics or language or about medicine or even philosophy, uh, we should still listen and find truth where it can be found. And so this idea of common grace is really a good window into why I think Bavink takes so seriously those who he disagrees with. Mm. He is a, such a good listener because he's listening not just to their arguments, but he's listening uh, for truth from God and what they may have to say. Yeah, and um, great reform theology will always uh, recognize something like total depravity. So the fact that uh, the reason, the will, the emotions are bent away from God of all pers- all people who are not born again, um, while also saying the Lord is, is so good and so powerful that he can work in and even through those people who are set against him to... Uh, to speak uh, what is helpful at times, uh, even to people in the church. And so uh, I find that to be just an amazing tension, <laughs> uh, the total depravity and common grace. And right. um, Herman Bovink certainly taught both. And uh, I, th- I think the church would be very well served to capture. It's often the case that one or the other is emphasized. Yeah, I was just um, going to say that. He, I think it's beautiful how he, yeah. at the end of that, that, that quote that I shared, he says, sin is a power, a principle which has penetrated deeply into all forms of created life. So some people take common grace too far. and They almost yeah. take it so far to where they reject the, the prevalence of sin or the existence of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, or And especially of depravity and original sin. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so they have a sort of uh, rosy lens on which they view the world because of common grace but common grace isn't meant to be a rosy lens it's meant to be a truthful lens (laughs) it's meant to give glory to god yeah who who would use sinful people utterly opposed to him to draw to draw out some truth or beauty or goodness in the world Mm -hmm. and and so it, it isn't as though that person is um, I, I think of a philosopher who, who somebody might like who is not a Christian but who has some pretty good things to say about politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is to God's credit that a, yeah. a unregenerate person could uh, could spout forth some good things for mm-hmm. us to, to think about and believe in um, what, in the political or, or economic or um government or educational realms and so i think it's a it's a really neat thing that he does um Mm -hmm. by recognizing the goodness and uh, maybe one application is that we shouldn't be so um so worried or scared about something that is not expressly christian if we using our minds as regenerate people and using the scriptures to determine what is good can find some goodness or truth from a worldly institution Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah, this is sort of the fundamental way in which Reformed theology is so different from mm. capital F fundamentalism, yeah. uh, which really wants to put people into camps and pit them against one another, the church versus, versus the secular world, you know? Um, in, in, in common grace, we see the Reformed tradition's uh, antipathy towards what we could call uh, Anabaptistic theology, mm-hmm. um, how it, it sort of does that sort of pitting against the church and the world in a very sharp, sharp way. And some self-prescribed Reformed people re- totally reject common grace, too. I yes. mean, that was the whole reason for oh, yeah. the beginning of the Protestant Reformed Church. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this is an in-house, de- in-house debate yeah, yeah, it is. In, in the Reformed world. Yeah. But by and large, the mainstream of Reformed theology has held to it uh, in one form or another. Yeah. Um, I think another lesson for me to sort of move to the next thing uh, for, from Bavink is what Eglinton does throughout the book of showing Bavink's um, attention to, to racism. What was... I think most interesting, not maybe not most interesting, but very interesting mm. to, to us, I think, as American readers, is the two times that Bobbing comes to the Americas uh, to visit uh, both the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And on his second visit in the in the early uh, 1900s, I think it was 1908. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that he, he pinpoints as a problem in American culture, even back then, was the racism issue. Uh, he he noticed in ways that Americans were maybe oblivious to back then uh, the profound problem of racism that had been caused by slavery and how there was still so much or such a long way to go. Uh, and he, he said that, that there's going to be a few different ways cr- Americans may try to go about resolving this issue. Um, Hmm. And he's so he he prophesied it was not going to be pretty. It was not. Yeah. And so he eventually says the only way it can really happen is through the way of religion. But he feared even then that with given the separation of the white church and the black church, that it would not go very well and that it would be uh, maybe the undoing of of America. Yeah. So he even is a little bit despairing of the the whole American experiment. He came to America the first time in the in the 1890s. I want to say 1892, 1894, and he was very uh, excited about about mm. America. But he did warn his audience back in the Netherlands, <laughs> saying, "Pump your brakes a little bit. If you go there, if you immigrate there." Uh, you may be tempted to become a Methodist or an, or an Arminian, basically, yeah. was what he was saying. Because American religion, the, the DNA of American religion had become so far from Calvinism. Uh, sort of a, it was the second great awakening. I can yeah. do it. I, I yep. Nothing can stand in my way. Um, I can, very self-assured yeah. uh, uh, way of thinking about the world. And he says the Calvinist... Is the pretty much the opposite. It's mm-hmm. uh, the Calvinist thinks little of himself. The American thinks so much of himself that he might not be able to yeah, be a Calvinist. Which was a profound observation, <laughs> I think, is, yeah. for us as Calvinists in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was basically saying American soil is not good soil for for Calvinism, um, even though he wanted to see it grow. Um, maybe he'd be a little more proud now, but still, I think default American Christianity is still the same as he yeah. noticed it was back then. But in the in his second trip in the in the early 1900s, he was a little bit more uh, negative towards mm-hmm. America cool. and was a little bit more despairing, particularly because of this racial issue. And so I thought that was interesting that he was able to pinpoint that 
and to see that there's going to be a lot of work to be done. Yeah, his ability to sort of prophesy um, what was what would come ahead in the 20th century was quite impressive. Um, he, he did something similar with even Nazism, and as Europe yeah. fell into secularism, he recognized that uh, it would have a an ethical vacuum that there would it would be living in, and, and it would be looking towards something extremely powerful, mm. like ethnicity, race, um, to answer that question of sort of what the highest good would be, mm-hmm. um, and he recognized that that nationalism would would probably take the the place of um, a, a Christian ethic of you know uh, how should we live, how should we think about one mm-hmm. another, how should we organize our society, and so. Uh, I don't know if he absolutely pinpointed uh, that Nazism would would occur, but but saw that nationalism would be a major issue ahead as Christian um, loving your neighbor, serving one another. Um, that ethic was was sort of eroded mm-hmm. um, and replaced with with sort of the power ethic of mm-hmm. uh, Europe in the early, particularly the early twentieth century, which is such a powerful place. Yeah, and I think a lot of the reason he thought the way he did on those lines was because of his uh, deep reading of Nietzsche and mm-hmm. of seeing that Nietzsche, what Nietzsche was offering was a coherent atheism that didn't borrow from the, a Christian mm-hmm. ethical mm-hmm. framework like a lot of atheism did and, and I would Certainly argue does. still does. Oh, yeah. um, what Nietzsche was doing was saying we need to toss aside the Christian ethical framework. It doesn't fit with atheism. And so what was beginning to bubble up in the turn of the 20th century uh, was a robust atheism that was set completely against uh, any religion. And with this new this new atheism, not, not the capital in capital A new atheism that we've seen recently, yeah, but yeah. with this late nineteenth, earliest, earliest twentieth, earlier twentieth century uh, atheism, what we see is a sort of um, a full orbed attack on on Christianity, and so mm-hmm. Bobink then decided that, that there was really only two w- fundamental worldviews. There's the theistic worldview and the atheistic worldview, mm. and I think he saw that with this robust atheistic worldview so, so things are going to go down natural selection was going to yep. was going to yep. happen evolution. and should happen evolution yep. should happen and so he sort of foresaw in nietzsche nietzsche's thought uh what would later come forward with communism in the 20th century yeah. and with uh trying to eradicate certain people groups um, the superman deserves to be at the top right and yep. that's what that's what hitler was trying to do yeah uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, another thing that I would draw is just his honesty and his humility. As a man of such great intellect, uh, it always strikes me. Uh, he had self-doubt. Uh, he wondered if he could do it, if he could achieve important things, and um, if he could bring glory to Christ. Uh, that, that In his diary, it just strikes me as profoundly humble and... Um, not not in a self-deprecating way necessarily, but just a, a um, he's he's look he's trying to be and uh, who he should be and fulfill his potential, which he kind of knows he has, um, but never uh, never sort of just beating himself up unnecessarily. So I I, I like that. Uh, hmm. For example, there's there's one point he admits in his diary that he's sometimes tempted to discard scripture and go the way of the hmm. modern philosopher. 
um, go into natural philosophy um, instead of basing all his beliefs, all of his ethics on the pages of scripture. Hmm. And so he's honest about that, but then he recognizes right away, no, when I do this, my soul is, is, um, is wounded, it's worse off. Um, and when I'm living yeah. a pious life, when I'm living in submission to God, then I have joy, I have peace, I have hope in my life. And so um, <laughs> I don't know how many theologians or maybe even Christians in general would just be that honest in their diary or in their self-reflection. And I appreciate mm. that about him for sure. Yeah, it makes the rest of his work a little bit more textured. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and beautiful and, and in, in a sense a little bit more reliable. Uh, because he's honest with his struggles, we can appreciate his work that much more. Yeah. Uh, he really thought through this um, and was really wrestling through through things for the sake of truth and being honest with with where he was at. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really loved uh, about the book, and I'll make this short, is his friendship with uh, uh, with a man. I, I'm going to butcher his name, <laughs> Snook. Hugronye? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's about as close as I can get. <laughs> uh, very interesting name, but this this man, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Christian was his actual first name. Oh, was Christian it? Snauk? Yeah, Christian Snauk. Yeah. yeah. So, any, this man and Bavink did not see eye to eye. I think they met. Was it at Leiden? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and so they were. They sort of clicked and had good friend chemistry. Um, and they were both very they, smart. They were very very strong intellects. Yep. And they would remain close friends uh, throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, Snoke or Snook, however his name is pronounced. Snoke. No, uh, just kidding. <laughs> interestingly, was very, very interested in Islam yeah. and would actually end up moving to the Middle East. And in fact, he was, was, it the, was he the first Westerner to ever make it to, to Mecca? Into Mecca, yeah, into Mecca. Um, and the reason he did that was because he essentially claimed that he had become, he had converted to mm-hmm. Islam he had taken a wife of a very, very young age, I think 13 or something wow. like that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he became Muslim. He yeah. became Muslim, but then he would come back to the Netherlands and act like a normal <laughs> ne- nor- nor- a normal Dutchman, Dutchman a normal yeah. Hollander. Uh, and so I thought that, that whole, the fact that they maintain this friendship and that they debate very, yeah. very deep things and that they really, as far as I know, there was really never any change of opinion either way mm-hmm. uh, I don't think Bob Inc. ever really swayed too much and I don't think Snook did either uh, and so it's interesting to me just that that Bob Inc. maintained such a close friendship and was able to do so I think in our world today it's very mm. difficult uh, for friends to maintain their friendships if they have such stark and sharp disagreements yeah kind of like uh, Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg right being yeah friends yeah um, great example and uh well there was one case where uh Bavink gave a commencement address and it was regarded as a, an, a fantastic address and he <laughs> sent the manuscript of it to Snauk and uh Snauk responds with you're just preaching to the choir man you like you you're just um, this isn't this isn't helpful. This is just affirming the things that all these people already believe, and you need to be more mm-hmm. uh, self-critical and, and evaluative. And and so, like they were honest with each other and and mm-hmm. even critical of one another, and yet they remained friends. So I thought that was yeah, a great uh, lesson to be learned. Yeah, and may, my last uh, word, I guess, for for this podcast of what I what I uh, draw away from. Uh, Bavink's work is just the doxological nature of his theology. So by doxological, I mean um, he's giving worship to God 
Um, hopefully in, in your church you sing the doxology occasionally, praise God from whom all blessings flow, or something to that effect, uh, the Gloria Patri, you know, glory be to the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, that that we often begins a Reformed worship service or might conclude it um, at our church. It's a conclusion. Um, but just the praise that we give to God by studying his word and by trying to understand more of who he is is certainly something that I, it, it's really the main reason I like to pick up any work by, by Bavink is I am going to grow in my love of God because that's the purpose that Bavink had in writing. Hmm. Um, uh, he wanted to grow in his love for Christ. And so uh, the reader is going to probably do the same. Yeah, I think that that, as we've sort of said, is, is dripping on every page. Yeah, uh, it, it always brings brings things back to God's glory and to our focus being on on the Lord alone. And I think that that's one of the most beautiful aspects of His theological method, if we could call it that. Yeah. So we hope that this episode has been enlightening for you. Maybe you've learned more than you ever did, maybe, maybe <laughs> more than you ever wanted to know about Herman Bavink, and maybe you've learned a little bit about the 19th and the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, Reformed tradition. And so, yeah, we, we look forward to the future episodes in this series where we'll touch on different uh, men and women of church history, and we hope that in all of it, that it is, as we say, helping you understand Scripture mm-hmm. more, helping you to appreciate Uh, the Lord more and be thankful to him and also helping you live in your daily lives. Yep. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great week. Grace and peace, you guys.